All right, so the first section is the savant and uh, all of us. Um, so we listened to a podcast. Um, this guy was at a pool party. He dove in or jumped in and hit his head, and he lost hearing in his left ear. Um, you know, he was really sick for a while because, of, like, you know, the damage he did to his ear, and he just thought he was basically just deaf in that ear. Um, and then one day he was hanging out with that same friend, and he got the urge to sit down at his piano even though he had like no musical ability previously and him and his friend were just hanging out and he sat down and started playing the piano like he had been playing it like all his life and his friend and him were just like sitting there shocked and he just kept playing um so he went back and to his parents house or whatever and was talking to his mom and he's like you have to come with me let's go to the store, the music store. Like, I have to show you something. And she was like, okay. So they went to the store, and again, he sat down and started just playing the piano, like, beautifully. And his mom was, like, crying, and the salesperson came over and was like, how long have you been playing for? And he's like, an hour. So, so he had no previous exposure? Yeah, he had no previous musical experience. He said, you know, like, he, he can't read music, he still can't read music, but he had absolutely no previous... Uh, musical abilities like that wasn't who he was like he was a very business type person like completely not even part of his personality trait and then after he hit his head and you know he thought he just lost hearing in his ear um, he just completely was able to play the piano like flawlessly and he said he would go in between like different styles too and it was he described it or as they described it in class too as like playing guitar hero where it's just like there and you hit like the buttons like it was just being kind of like fed to him and he actually this was kind of a bad experience for him because he uh was this you know up and coming businessman he was young you know he was going to do business for the rest of his life and then all of a sudden he like was creatively frustrated because he couldn't <laughs> because he had this new ability but like he didn't know what to do with it and he wanted to be kind of the person he was before but he kind of like became a new person but it was like a bad thing for him like he had a really hard time continuing his life the way that he did and this like really interfered with it because it like it like disrupted his whole life so even though you know he was diagnosed with the acquired musical savant syndrome. You'd think that would be like a super cool, great thing, but it actually like ruined his life for quite some time. But do they know where that came from, how that ability was unlocked? Because if I had to just, you know, spitball a theory, it would be that it, he, he's not just creating music theory or coming up with music theory out of nothing. So is it possible that it's just from, you know, you know, background influence, background noise that he's experienced in his life, you know? Maybe the guy watched a couple of videos on music theory before. and <laughs> Well, the one thing that we discussed in class was, like, not much music nowadays is original. Like, everybody kind of borrows and, you know, snags from everybody else. But to, so possibly maybe his ability to just know music was somewhere in there, like, so deep, deeply ingrained. And then this, like, kind of unlocked it. Like, maybe we all have that because of what we've experienced. But, like I said, he had no... He, like, he, he still can't read music. Like, he was huh. never able to. He doesn't know how to read music. Like, so if you give him a piece, he can't play it. 
but he can sit down and play the piano. But, like, you can't give him Mozart and, like, he'll read it, the sheet music, and play it. So he huh. just, maybe, you know, it's a culmination of every, like, something he's, like, like you said, like, just general experience, like, listening to music. Maybe that's, like, in his brain, but... Did they talk about whether he's able to repeat music if he hears it? Like, can he just not sight read, or it, he's just generating music? It's whatever. I think he just sits down and plays. Huh. And it's just, like, beautiful. Wow. Okay. Okay, so the <laughs> next one, um, this guy, Jason, he was attacked, he was mugged, and he got hit in the head, I think it was with a gun, um, but he's the one who can draw fractals, like, perfectly. He said he used to hate math, um, and after he got hit, you know, he said it wasn't, like, a horrible experience, like, like, getting mugged, you know, but after that, he just started drawing these fractals, and he was, like, overwhelmed by, like, seeing shapes in, like, his ordinary day, um, so that's when he started drawing, um, but after the attack, he had, like, severe OCD and a TBI, um, so that wasn't good either, but he would just, like, be, he would start drawing those images, and then one day he was at a bus stop, I believe, and this guy came up to him, and he was like, why are you drawing those? Like, what are you, like, how are you doing that? And he's like, I don't know, like, I'm just drawing, and he's like, you should come to college, like, come to my college, and, because you're drawing, like, these complicated mathematical figures, and he really didn't understand it, like, he didn't understand what he was drawing, or what, like, these images he, he was seeing were, until this guy noticed, and was like, hey, that's, like, really impressive, because you obviously know, like, they're, you know, such tiny, minute patterns, um, so he ended up, going to college so he could understand it was like going to a psychiatrist and like understanding like oh I am depressed and like having that revelation he was like oh my gosh now I understand what these designs and drawings are and shapes that I'm seeing now after he got hit so he ended up going to school for a really long time to learn about so he could understand like what he was seeing was he able to pick up on the actual math behind those shapes easier than he might have normally been able to, or he was just... No, he did really well at it because he, like, was able to see them and understand them. So it's, like, where most of us wouldn't be able to really, like, get it. Like, we'd see it and be like, well, that's cool, but, like, it's, it's so almost, complicated. Yeah, it's almost like he's starting with the reverse because I, I suck with numbers because I can't visualize it right. until I have a visual in front of me. So he's starting with the full visual. Yeah, so it's like he knows what it is. It's like it's like you know everything, but then you're putting a name to it. Yeah. So he, like, was already equipped, and he literally could draw them and see them. Like, it was, like, part of his vision now. There's been other instances where people have, like, where people see dates and stuff. Like, it's not obviously in your actual vision but like you have this mental mind image that project that can actually project itself into your real world and people say it's really disorienting and that's what he also experienced was like he would have literal like shapes in his visual field like that he knew weren't real objects but like were included in his visual field um so he 
it was bad at first because he was having so much problems with his OCD and like the TBI that really messed up his life. But after he started going to school and understanding it, um, he said it was magic and he is like very happy about it now because he kind of got over, not get over, but he learned to manage with his OCD that he got from, you know, being attacked. Um, but now, now that he was able to go to school and understand and learn about these things, it's, he says it's magical. So he had, uh, a different experience than the first guy, but it's really interesting because like, again, like he hated math. The other guy was not musical at all. And this guy hated math. And now he, that's what he does. I mean, he went to school for a really long time and that's what he studies now is like physics and math and did you discuss what portion of his brain was damaged to allow for that? I don't know if there's a specific there's but nobody knows why this happens. Mm. That's the point. I gotcha. It's like nobody understands why or how these random um like damages to the brain because there's not like it's like that guy with the ear or him getting hit in the head like there's not enough damage anywhere in particular to say this is how this happens. Like, nobody knows how or where, you know, the damage was to make this possible because there's not a lot of damage. Like, the one guy, you know, lost hearing in his ear, that's completely different than getting, like, hit in the back of the head with a gun or whatever, so... It's almost like whatever parts of the brain are being damaged to allow for that, it's it's like your like brain... influencing? Yeah, it's kind of like it's cutting out any sort of background noise so you're more able to almost hyper-focus on these very specific things. It's crazy. This one's my favorite. So there's this woman, Joy, and she can smell Parkinson's. So her husband was diagnosed with Parkinson's, and she noticed that he kind of got, like, a new musk to him or to her. Like, he didn't – like, she's obviously been married to him for a really long time. And then um, I think it was just before his diagnosis or maybe after, but she started to notice that he, you know, had this different smell to him. Um, And then he eventually passed away, so she was going to, like, grief counseling for – um, other people who, I guess just grief counseling. I don't think it was anybody in particular, um, or it might've been people who lost people from Parkinson's. Um, but she started talking to people and they, some other people said like, yeah, my husband or, you know, my partner or whoever also had kind of like a musky smell. So it was just like this kind of random coincidence that they happened to bring up that she was, that other people were like, oh yeah, my you know, my person who passed away Parkinson's also kind of had like this funny smell. And so, um, so she started to believe that, you know, maybe she was smelling Parkinson's. So, uh, she, they did her whole research study on it and gave her 12 people. And there were some people who had Parkinson's, some people who did not have Parkinson's. And, you know, she smelt like their articles of clothing and was able to determine who had Parkinson's and who didn't have Parkinson's. So she got 11 out of 12 correct in this study. And it turns out the one person she didn't get correct just wasn't diagnosed yet. So even the doctors didn't know that this person had Parkinson's, but she correctly guessed all 12 people (laughs) who had Parkinson's and who didn't have Parkinson's. And like other people aren't able to smell this per se. Or have this ability to, like, you know, sense it. Like, she obviously somehow figured out that other people smelt the smell 
but she's able to very accurately determine if they smell like this. So now that's like really launching forward research into like what's causing that smell because that can be an indicator. Maybe that's how you can diagnose Parkinson's way earlier than just waiting for somebody to start having problems. So if you can, you know, if they can figure out what is causing the smell that for some reason she's just able to smell and this, she's different because she never had, she didn't have any trauma or anything. Like she didn't get hurt, you know, probably to cause this. Like it wasn't like the other two where there was like a very clear shift. And when this happened, like she just came upon this ability that she was able to smell Parkinson's. Yeah, that is really weird. My grandma had Parkinson's and nobody ever mentioned uh, mentioned being able to smell something on her. So I, I wonder how rare yeah, that ability so it's is. It's like maybe there's more people who are able to do that, but it's like it's really strange how specific those situations had to be for her to be able to realize that. Where like the other people were in accidents, you know, and then it kind of happens. But like she had to get married to that person, have him have Parkinson's, then go to like this grief counseling, talk to people, figure out that there's like this smell. And then like from there or else we would have never known. And she would have never known that she had this ability to do it. And then the last example was, um, there was this medical student and he was doing cocaine, PCP and different amphetamines. And he, one day developed like a dog like sense of smell and he very detailed recorded like this experience of for this one day or a little bit longer I think but um he just had like immaculate smell like he could smell everything he could smell things like you know like the books like the smell of the books from like far away like everything. He went outside and like was going to markets and he was just smelling everything. And he said it was like euphoric. It was almost like a sexual experience almost by like how much pleasure he got from like being able to smell literally everything. Like he could, he was just walking around smelling everything. He'd pick up like anything, not just like fruits or whatever. Like, like I said, books, like anything. And he would smell it. And he said it was like he was a dog. And it was because of all of the drugs he had taken. And he actually wrote a book about this um, and said it was based on some med student, but it was actually him as a med student. And he came out years later and he was pretty well known for doing other experiments with drugs and stuff and recording like his experiences. Um, but yeah, so after three weeks, it finally went away. But he said it was the best experience like of his life. He wishes he could do it again. Like he said, it was so cool that to have like that much intense focus and that like strong of an ability that he would totally do it again. That he like misses it. Yeah, I wonder if it was a certain combination of drugs that he was doing, or if it was any one in particular, and what exactly it is about him. Because there's so many different variables right. there that like could how have, it affects you, and that could have caused it. And the fact that that's even possible is well, and it sounds like it never happened again. It sounds like it was just that one time that he managed to do it, and I'm sure he's probably tried again to recreate that experience because he says, you know, if I could, I would. So again, it's like. And that's, you can't really test that. So I do kind of wonder um, 
how accurate his experience actually was mm-hmm. um, or if it was more of an illusory thing because he was high and that happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, that's, that's very subjective, so that would be hard to judge. And it'd be crazy if it was possible because if you've ever seen a, a diagram of, you know, like a dog's head mm-hmm. and how much of their head is dedicated just to the olfactory sense, <laughs> that would be absolutely insane. So I guess the overarching question is, is do all of us have the ability to be savants in some way do you think we all do probably i'm sure that it's different for everybody and again there are so many different variables and since we don't even know what sort of brain damage or what what exactly is happening what the mechanism is for allowing this to happen if i just had to guess yeah probably (laughs) so that's what i think i mean i think that all of us if we're just in the right circumstances probably have some sort of crazy ability and it could be completely different or maybe all of us have the same abilities but just growing up and how much coffee we drink and where we went to school and how much sunlight we get like I'm sure that you know just all would make a change into what would trigger something like that because I mean loads of people get brain injuries or get hurt or whatever and don't develop that I mean the majority the vast majority so I think it's really interesting And why don't we, why aren't we able to tap into those things? It's like, if those are, is it designed because we would just be in sensory overload all the time? You know, if we had all of these abilities and weren't able to just play music or smell things like incredibly or whatever. But I think it's super interesting to think that we all could possibly unlock this within ourselves. But then it's like. I think, I think the reason that we aren't inherently able to do things like that is because as far as our senses and our abilities go, it's like, uh, uh, an ocean that's an inch deep, mm-hmm. uh, which goes back to what I had asked before about, you know, maybe, uh, just eliminating some background noise. Mm-hmm. Um, and depending on what sort of lifestyle you have, you might not even notice if your newfound ability to just draw fractals is cutting away Mm -hmm. from another sense or another ability you might not know but it probably is so then they ask the question you know would it be better if it was permanent or temporary like if we could all temporarily feel these things would that be better or worse than it being permanent and you know there's we've have already have examples of you know some people really upset that it was temporary and then there's kind of an example of all of them. So like, you know, the guy who could smell was really upset that it was temporary. Um, but those other people were, you know, very happy, you know, the guy with the math and I'm sure that lady is, you know, there's not too much downside to being with small Parkinson's, but you know, another thing is then is like, what if she's, you know, like those mediums where like they'll go into a grocery store and then they're like, sorry to bother you. And they like, you know, disrupt somebody's shopping trip to like (laughs) read a spirit to them, you know, like, And that, like, that can be a good thing, but also can be really upsetting. And I know I don't really believe in that. Um, But it's kind of that idea of, like, should they be interfering? So, like, if this woman smells you and she can smell that you have Parkinson's, like, should she tell you? Especially since she might not know you, but now she's kind of living with this idea of, like, I have this gift and I could be helping somebody, but, like, now she knows all these people who might have Parkinson's and it's like, do you tell them? Like, so she's kind of living with a bird in there of like, it's kind of like if you were able to see everybody's death day or something, like, would you tell them like, 
but now you're kind of burdened with knowing this detail, this kind of sad detail about somebody's life. Yeah. In that case in particular, I, I think that I personally would want to tell people, but I can understand the devil's advocate argument for, for not telling people because that's, that's pretty stressful. Um, well, people would think you're crazy too. Yeah. Yeah. You probably. just walked up to somebody in my ear and you're like, I can smell Parkinson's. Yeah, and just you, trust and me. You have Parkinson's. <laughs> My source is just trust me. <laughs> like that, that would be insane, and it would be exhausting because, like, how many people do you think you walk by, and it's like I just have to run into the store to get some cheese, and then you're like, oh my gosh, do I tell this person? Like, I don't have time. And it's like, it would become such a nuance of, like, your day to day life, and it would be so interrupting that, like, I think you would just get tired of. That's true. Yeah, whether it should be permanent or temporary, I guess, really depends on what that ability is yeah, and, and how it's benefiting it. you, uh, if at all. And also, um, if more people were to pick up on the fact that you could temporarily induce some ability, mm-hmm. like the guy with his extreme olfactory, uh, not overload, but just increased senses, mm-hmm. uh, I could see people abusing that. Yeah. Or just going out of their way to induce these things a little bit too much. It would become like a drug for some people, right. I'm sure. Yeah, so... And I think one of those things is, like, you can't know if you would enjoy it or not until you're living with it daily. Because we've talked about other people in this class about, like like I said, like, they can visually see, like, days and just, like, all sorts of things. Like, they everything that they're thinking they can see in their visual field and it can get really disruptive because you can't turn it off. And so some people have learned to kind of deal with it and it's kind of normalized. Like it's just like, Oh, I've had on my hair type deal. But other people it's like, it's like tetanitis or something where like, it's just, it's like torture. So for some people it's torturous and for some other people it's like, it's just part of me and they are able to deal with it. All right, we'll move on. Oh, one thing I thought that was interesting that somebody brought up in class was they know somebody who took LSD um, before taking a test, and they were able to memorize their entire test book. <laughs> like the entire text, not test book, but the entire textbook. So like this one time they were able to trip on LSD, they were able to memorize the entire textbook. And it's like, if we could just tap into that, like, tiny little increments that would be so handy but like to memorize the whole textbook is great for that one test or for that one class but like after that it's crazy how wide the variety of experiences that people have on drugs like that because you also have a lot of people that uh have psychosis induced or unlock uh schizophrenia in themselves by taking lsd right and most people aren't like sitting down trying to memorize a textbook but this guy was like specifically studying so it's like most people aren't going to sit down and try and study when they're on lsd so i thought that was super interesting that Hmm. and it's like that's super cool but at the same time it's like i would be so annoyed because it's like if i would have known that i was going to be able to memorize this entire textbook i'd like learn something really I wonder if he's ever tried repeating that, if he's ever been able to do that again, or if that was a one-time thing. Yeah, I can't remember what the friend said in the uh, in the class discussion, but um, yeah, that'd be super interesting to see. I'm sure he probably isn't able to do it frequently. But... Also, yeah, how much is he going to want to take LSD to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to try, try and repeat it? Okay, so the next sec- section is Alice in Wonderland Syndrome. So... 
Alice in Wonderland syndrome, if you could guess, what do you think it would like entail? Uh, Alice in Wonderland syndrome? Mm-hmm. Oh, God. I honestly don't know because there's a lot that's going on in yeah, Alice, Alice in Wonderland. Yeah, Alice in Wonderland is kind of a, <laughs> I, I have no idea. Like an LSD trip, yeah. So, um, <laughs> so it's, it's mostly seen in children. And at age eight and at night, they'll look into like their room and everything will start shrinking or growing. So like when Alice takes like the potion or the cookie or whatever, mm-hmm. um, but they're like not able to, they, they like know in their mind that like, oh, my couch is there and like my stuffed animal is there, but everything kind of like shifts size and like location kind of like it just starts like growing and being like disproportional to what it actually is um almost sounds kind of like a depth perception issue of some sort right but like they can see it all like growing or moving Mm -hmm. so like you're looking there and like you're just watching kind of everything like change shape and stuff and get bigger and smaller and um they said most kids said that if they blink a lot that'll like kind of get rid of it. Um, so there's no treatment and it's really harmless. Um, but it's pretty untalked about because there's no harm in it really. Like it's not hurting them at all. It's like not, it could be kind of frightening, you know, per se, but it's not like doing any harm. This is just with children or? Well, they notice it most in children. Okay. Um, so like the average age is like eight And they think that a lot of the times that this hasn't gone discovered because nobody wants to say, hey, I'm kind of like hallucinating. And like what eight year old is going to have the knowledge to understand that, I guess, to be like, go to their parents and be like, oh, my things are getting bigger and smaller. And for the (laughs) parents to be like, oh, to take it seriously, right, to take it seriously (laughs) and not to think it's like just kind of a like a funny like, oh, you were dreaming or being childlike or whatever. Um, so they thought that maybe, um, so they did like MRIs and CAT scans on these children and there was no differences like in their brains. Um, and so they were thinking, well, maybe this is kind of like a form of epilepsy or something like that. And so far it doesn't seem like there's any connection to epilepsy or obviously like psychosis or anything. Um, but they followed, there's not a ton of research on it, but they followed a lot of children that reported it and they later developed migraines. Like most of them suffered from migraines later on in life. That was going to be my next question is, uh, if they've been able to monitor, monitor these kids long enough to see if there are any common factors amongst them. Yeah. And them. it seems like migraines is like the biggest one. And so they do, th- it does happen in adults. Um, but more rarely, um, but yeah, so they've recorded kids like at the age of like four being able to communicate that they've like experienced this, but they just think that it's so strange that nobody, like it seems almost like stigmatized that like that's why nobody's, that this phenomenon hasn't been discovered sooner or researched is because nobody wants to be like, oh, I'm hallucinating or like talking about that or being like, I can see these things or whatever. So, um, there's definitely going to Well, and be... if it's not a permanent syndrome either, if it only lasts through 
about your childhood and right. until whatever point you might not know to communicate it. And by the time that you, by the time that you would want to communicate that, it might be gone. <laughs> well, like I, like we talked about this for quite a while, you know, in class and I was like, yeah, I definitely don't think I've ever experienced that. But like the more I think about it, I'm like, I think I have, and I don't know if that's my mind, like, you know, a false memory that I'm creating, but I feel like I've laid in bed before when I was a kid and like seen my stuff like very fluidly changing size. So I don't know if I'm actually retrieving that memory or if I'm kind of coming up with it, but I don't tend to do that. Like I don't tend to, like if I know I haven't had an experience and I know I haven't, but I think it's just one of those things where you're just like, wow, I'm really tired. But I feel like I've laid in bed before as a kid and like looked at stuff and like seen it. It looks like splotchy. Like I remember it like looking splotchy, like I've, like, like when you rub your eyes or something, you know, and then it would be like, things would kind of like, so I'm thinking maybe I did experience that as a kid. And I just like really just didn't, it wasn't scary enough or weird enough for me to ever to like create that as a solid memory. But I'm pretty confident. Like I have laid in bed before and maybe experienced that. Yeah. I wouldn't be able to, but it took me forever. Cause I was like, there's no way. But you know, the more that like I'm sitting here talking about it and like listening to these lectures and stuff, I'm like, maybe I have, like, I feel like maybe that's something I don't know for sure. Like I definitely, like I, most people, you know, have a concrete example or can know that they've had that, but maybe it's just something that, you know, an experience that I just didn't think about enough. It's possible. Yeah. So it's pretty, pretty interesting. And they need to do a lot more research about it too. Most people don't know about it. Like if you were to tell most healthcare professionals about that, like they probably wouldn't know what you're talking about. About the only sleep anomaly that I've ever even heard of is sleep paralysis. So I, this one I've definitely never heard of. Right. Okay. So another article we read about was, um, they were talking about just having a healthy brain, um, actually like limit us in our ability to perceive time. So they did some studies where people would give, like they would give you a, a stack of cards and you would read them like numbers off of them or whatever was on them. And you were supposed to stop when you thought 90 seconds had passed. So you'd be, I feel like I would be horrible at that. Like, <laughs> I I, <laughs> like 90 seconds. I don't know. Um, so healthy brain people, surpassed it usually um but people who had like uh uh different like psychological problems like were like schizophrenic or things like that they were very accurate they were way more accurate than neurotypical is the word i was thinking of but so neurotypical people usually went over but they were very they were not accurate but like starting startlingly, people who were neurodivergent were very accurate on being able to tell when 90 seconds passed. Huh. So they're thinking that, you know, a lot of these people had um, orbital frontal cortex damage. So at the front of your brain. Yeah. Um, so they're thinking um, that stress might be part of this. There's, I guess there's a neuropeptide that, um, increases when you're stressed. Uh, so like 
soldiers or if you put somebody in a stressful situation and then measure this neuropeptide, it's increased. And they think that, you know, people with this damage, um, like when you're going through trauma, your like adrenaline is so increased that you're more sensitive to time passing. Like you're more aware of time than if you're just neurotypical and just living your life. Cause it makes sense. Like if you're in a constant state of danger, like you're going to be hyper aware of your surroundings at all times. That's why like it can be exhausting to, you know, be in those stressful situations because you're always on guard. You're always so like active. So if you're always doing that, like you're going to have a better perception of time than somebody who doesn't have to worry about like their surroundings. So if you're just like living a happy, jolly, good life, you're going to be like, oh, well, I think 90 seconds has passed or whatever. But somebody who has those super stressful situations are like, it's been 90 seconds. Well, is there a specific part of the brain in the first place that allows for us to to perceive time? Or is it just a medley of different I think factors? It's just a medley. Okay. But for some reason, they were focusing on that um, orbital frontal cortex damage. It seemed like people who had damage to that area of the brain were able to do that. Um, I'm horrible with time perception, so... <laughs> yeah, so it's like... And also that peptide, you know, obviously they think plays a role in it. Um, but they did it with, like, neurotypical people, you know, where they subject them to something stressful and then ask them how much, you know, time would elapse. And they would do, like, a little bit better. Um, but definitely, like, stress induces this neuropeptide. And then they think this neuropeptide has to help with being able to, and it's probably not, being able to perceive time accurately is probably like a side effect of that. Like obviously probably that peptide is something to keep you alive, you know, in stressful situations. Like if you're living in a rough place or whatever, like that's to keep you alert and aware so you can stay safe. But I think a byproduct of that, just being hyper aware, um, makes you able to perceive time more accurately. Uh, now I, you might've already said this, but is there a reason that they honed in specifically on that, that peptide? Uh, cause there is a lot in the body that changes when you're stressed like that. Like those people also probably have really high cortisol levels as well constantly. Yeah. I'm, I don't know if that would have an influence at all, but I'm not exactly sure why they, um, focus on that specific peptide. Um, Maybe it's, I think it's more prominently found in, yeah, that's what it is. It's more, it's concentrated in that cortex. Okay. So that's where, um, like in those people who had the damaged cortex, that's where it's like concentrated. So like you have different chemicals, like, you know, that are concentrated in different parts of the brain. And since they noticed that like people who had the, that specific cortex damage were doing better at it, they looked at those chemicals and they had really high levels of that peptide. Okay, I gotcha. So, there, those two things to me are kind of different, but um, it's just kind of interesting to see, like, the symptoms. There's no real, like, symptoms for either of those. 
especially for the first one, like you don't really have symptoms other than the actual experience because there's no other, you know, like harmful experiences. And to be diagnosed, you just kind of have to say like, there's no diagnostic test. It's just, have you had this experience kind of thing? And there's no treatment. There's, you know, they have no idea. So it's, but it's strange that there's, you know, like a common age and they're sure it's a lot more common than is being reported but people just aren't reporting it. So they're pretty convinced that a large portion of the population does experience this, but just nobody, because it's not harmful because it's, there's no treatment, you know, like there's not a real need to talk about it, I guess. So that's why they don't think that, you know, there's really much conversation about it and that nobody really can tell. Well, and you know, the way that our society is geared, uh, being hyper aware of your surroundings is probably going to be rewarded more often than not anyway. So, so, so people will probably, uh, pat you on the back for maybe being more punctual because you're so aware of, of, uh, time. And so for the first one, the Alice in Wonderland syndrome, they're testing the, like the current research and the future research that they're doing is focused on uh, testing saliva they think there might be like a dna indicator that you're like prone to it like like with narcolepsy like there's a gene for it so if you have that gene you're more likely to get it doesn't mean if you have it you're gonna get it you know or whatever but they think that maybe there's a hopefully they think that there's a dna indicator for you know how this is happening All right, so the next one is the space around us, and it's a lot about, like, proprioception. Um, So way back in the day, uh, in the olden times, when women would wear big hats with feathers, men, or researchers, the the researchers weren't men, obviously, (laughs) um, they would notice that the women would come into, like, a doorway, and they would duck. Because they, like, they, but they could tell, like, where their feathers were. So they knew, like, how much to duck underneath, like, the doorway so they wouldn't hurt their feathers. So this kind of started the, um, interest in figuring out, like, how do we understand what's around us and how we, how do we feel something that isn't us? And how do we perceive the space around us? Um, so we use so many neurons to, you know, feel and to move and to gauge where we're going and how to move and, you know, like how to reach and grab something accurately. Um, so to do this, they had monkeys, um, and they had monkeys who were holding things passively and then monkeys who were go like specifically trying to reach and grab something and it used two different like sets of neurons to complete those actions so to hold something passively is different than trying to grab something um so they're um it all kind of all goes to brain mapping. I don't know if you've seen those pictures where it's like a picture of the brain and it'll be like your nose, like those kind of things. So, um, and I actually just learned about this in my neurophys class. Um, 
but we have such specific mapping for doing these things and we have like columns of neurons and rows. So the rows are different. Like if you go along the rows, it's like, that's how you get the mapping. Like, you know, like let's just say like your hands, knees, whatever. But if you go down the rows, they're all kind of the same. So like, it'll be like your arm moving left and all of those neurons in that row or column, um, will, are for that, like specifically moving your arm left. And then if you move your arm right, that column drastically decreases in activity. Yeah. And I actually just saw yesterday, um, a diagram. I don't know what textbook it was from, but it was talking about uh, brain remapping. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were giving a guy that lost half of his left arm from the elbow down. Um, and he was able to, if you were to touch certain parts of his upper arm, then he would get a phantom pain or phantom feeling like where his uh, thumb normally would have been. Mm-hmm. So his brain was remapping yeah. those feelings. And they Brains definitely do that, and especially, like, in other animals, then they've been able to see that. Like, if you completely cut out, um, like, a bird's ability to fly, they'll completely remap over it so that they can show that a lot better than they can in humans. Um, neuroplasticity. <laughs> I don't even know if it's neuroplasticity because that's, like, the ability to right. heal, but, I mean, it could. I guess it technically could be. Um, but... They were showing, um, they were also in class or discussing like how that can relate to like body dysmorphia because like if you just look at yourself and don't perceive yourself for how you actually are, you know, because you can like have distortions in that. So how we all perceive ourselves can be different based on, you know, how our neurons are firing. So maybe if there's a problem in how our neurons are firing in that way, like could that be why people have body dysmorphia or just different things like that. Um, which I think is super interesting to see how that could, um, work. Um, the next one was how different people and different cultures perceive touch. So they did like surveys and women are more okay with being touched than men obviously not in like (laughs) anyway but for the majority of time like women are more okay with like touching than men are and um obviously it's like very sensitive to like body regions and relationships so like your father can only touch you certain places like but your boyfriend can touch you you know like wherever like your mother can touch you different places than other people um And so they found that, which won't be a surprise, the British are, like, the worst at touching. Like, they do, they are, like, the least fond of touching anybody. Um, Which they, like, were saying is, like, not a surprise. Um, But kind of surprisingly is Italians are also, like, really against touching. Because you think about, like, Italians, like, you know, Fabi and her mom, like, they're really big into, like, hugging and kissing cheeks and, like, whatever. But they're... Like, but that's, like, only for people that you know, I guess. So they're also, they're, like, very comparable to the Brits, which I wouldn't have thought of. No, I wouldn't have either. They're they're a very physical culture, and, you know, they like to gesticulate a lot. Right, you think they're very friendly. Like, you see, like, I feel like I see Italians, and they're always, like, hugging and 
you know, kissing or whatever. And it's like, you know, that must be just familial or friend friendly because they are like super not okay with touching. Um, but the finish are like the best. They're like, I'll hug, touch (laughs) anybody. Like, they described it as being very cuddly. The pandemic has probably wreaked havoc. Right. So this definitely, yeah, this definitely doesn't have like, you know, this isn't definitely during the pandemic or anything. And that's actually a point. Um, but so I thought that was really interesting that, you know, based on our gender roles and like our comfortability with like being able to touch people and like how appropriate it is for men to touch women or women to touch men and how that kind of just ties into like society. It's like, yeah, that's got to have a lot of cultural influence, but it's like how, how much is that? Is it something we put on from ourselves? Because if we were in a completely, like if we could start from scratch and make men less creepy, (laughs) like maybe it would be different. You know what I mean? Like maybe men would be the same as women. Like there's no reason there shouldn't be, but it's because we have this like, you know, it's not even a stigma. I mean, it's just kind of true that, like, it's, in a, like, men shouldn't be allowed to touch women. Like, women are not going to take advantage of touching, whereas men are more likely to. So it's like, but if we could remove that, like, how different would that be? So another one is talking about, like, personal space. Um, so they found that... There's, like, personal space, but then there's also, like, a threatening space because they had people, like, strangers walk towards each other and stop when they felt uncomfortable. And, you know, because there's, there's, like, there's, th- there's a, there's a intimate space, personal space, social space, and public space. So, like, you have your intimate space, like, when you're with a partner, like, you guys are just, like, bodies against each other, and, like, that's okay. Like, that makes you happy. And then there's social space, like, where if you're sitting with a friend, like, you can sit next to each other. And then there's social space where if you're mingling or whatever, and there's public space where it's, like, I will stand as far away from you. Like, if you're in a park, like, you're not going to get anywhere close to somebody. Well, yeah, if anybody gets within, like, five feet of me or is walking toward me and gets to, I'll go out of my way to shift my path because it makes me uncomfortable. I feel like I'm going to get mugged or something. Well, and I hate, like, like, we went to the casino last night, and if there's one person sitting on, like, the side that I want to play on, like, I won't go. Yeah, there was a guy that sat right next to me on one of the penny slots, and, uh... It was fine after a minute, but at first I was like, hey. Who yeah, are like you? I don't, I, but I have such bad social anxiety. And it's not like, and it's like, and we don't go to those places often. So, I, like, if I was a regular at the casino, like, if I've ever been more than, you know, the four times that I've ever been there, I'm sure I might get more comfortable with it. But, like, I did not, like, that's not my thing. Like, you know, like, I, <laughs> I do not want to be near people. And, like, if there's people there, I, like, want to cry. Um, so, with animals, you know, because we're just, like, uh, gross people. I don't want to talk to you or whatever. But animals have this, that's kind of, like, their flight zone. Um, they call it the escape distance. So, like, if there's a predator so far away from you, like, you can be fine. But once that predator gets into, like, your escape zone, that's when they know they have, like, this, you know, pretty mapped out feeling 
of when they need to flee to escape this predator. But you can't just, like, flee all the time. You have to be, like, within so much of a distance of a predator probably at all times. Um, But they all kind of have this, uh, like, mapped out ability to sense when a predator is too close to them so they know to flee. Hmm. Which is interesting because we don't do that, obviously, but... I mean, kind of maybe in a sense we do. It's like, this person's too close to me, I need to get away from them. There may have been a time when we would do that, um, but it's generally a lot safer now than it ever has been before. Right, but I think I think we can still do that in kind of like an anxiety way where like, you know, nobody's going to like just walk up to a stranger and like put their head right next to somebody else's head. Like they're going to, like that person's going to freak out. It's so, kind of weird that you can kind of adapt to that though, because, you know, if you're a New Yorker, and mm-hmm. you're walking everywhere all the time and there are crowds of people, you're going to become way more numb to that than, like, where we're at. Yeah. You don't see any of that. If I was to go to New York and walk down the street, it would be a big anxiety-riddled experience for at least a couple days. <laughs> right, until you get used to it. And I think it's also your expectation. Like, if you're expecting, like, oh, I'm going to go on the subway... You're going to be like, oh, I'm probably going to have to sit really close to somebody. But here I am at the casino. I'm like, I do not want to sit next to anybody. So, and like if you're in the grocery store and somebody comes up and stands right next to you, you're like, oh, you know, and this has a lot to do with uh, like how this has changed with COVID too. It's like, you know, normally I wouldn't avoid people as much as I do, but now I'm like hypersensitive to it where it's like, if you get near me, Especially if you don't have, like, a mask on. Like, I'm bolting. Like, I'm out of there. Like, I'll come back around. So it's interesting how COVID has kind of, like you were saying, like, we don't have to worry about that as much anymore because we're not, like, trying to kill each other. But in the same way now to COVID, like, we've kind of reverted back to that where, like, we are constantly aware of everybody around us. And when people get too close to us, especially if they're threatening, as in they're not wearing a mask or something like that, or, like, they just look weird then like you're going to you've we've automatically adjusted our boundaries because of these circumstances so i think it's really interesting that we you know have these uh like standards and uh and like the more anxiety you have as your anxiety increases um your bubbles get bigger so like the more anxiety you have the more you know the more hyped up you are the, you know, the bigger your danger zone is, like the more you want people away from you, which they've shown to be true. I also wonder what the, uh, what the threshold is for difference in like appearance, for instance, and how that influences this. Cause for example, if you've ever seen some of those people that have the extreme body modifications where, you know, they've removed their mm-hmm. nose and have a bunch of tattoos and s- spikes and whatnot, if I saw somebody like that and they were standing really close to me, it's not right to think this way, but mm-hmm. I think I'd probably just be a little more anxious right off the bat because they look so different. Yeah, I don't think I would feel that way about those people. I feel that way about, like, people wearing camo. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I generally don't get freaked out around that, especially not, like, you know, grandma's like, if a grandma walks up to me in this A big burly tattooed man. <laughs> not even a big no? burly tattooed man. Just like, just like a townie, I guess. That's the <laughs> way to describe it. It's like, I feel like I'm a pretty uh, non-judgmental person. But for some reason, 
I, maybe maybe it's more specific to COVID. But you get the point. Right. It's... No, yeah. It's like, <laughs> you know, we all have our prejudice. And uh, it's interesting to know how that works. And just how our brain is able to recognize and understand. One of the big things that we talked about in class was um, how marketing is so geared towards our like proprioception um like we were talking about like a can of coke or a bottle of coke it's not a square for a reason because you have that feeling of like it fits in the palm of your hand and that's specifically designed that way to make us feel good holding it and a lot of people were talking about like you know like different marketing like if something is um aesthetically pleasing then it's a lot more desirable than if it wasn't. So a lot of people say like they buy the smart water bottle because they just like it, but also, you know, it fits in their hand really well or Fiji just because it's this like supposedly high quality. But if you were to get, you know, like a pop or something that was in a square, like you probably like it's different. So like we're so accustomed to, um, Uh, like familiarity that like that's why people don't change like people stick to to tradition and like that's like generational you know like the generation like our parents aren't gonna buy this new different styled coke bottle because they want the one that like they know and feel that feels familiar to them so it was interesting to think about like how much marketing has to play into that because if you have a product that feels desirable, then like you're going to want to buy it compared to something. But it's also a way to diversify yourself. So like the Fiji water is square and like those, um, smoothie brands, Hmm. like they're all square, but it's like to make themselves unique. Like, or you put yourself like those palm drinks or whatever, like the pomegranate stuff, like those are in a weird bottle. So it's like, you have to kind of balance between finding something that's pleasing to touch that fits in your hand or like a hat that fits right or whatever, um, opposed to being unique and different. Because if you go along with the psychology of it, then there's going to be, you know, all of the Coke bottles, all the pop bottles, you know, are going to be the same. So you have to kind of wager between what feels good to a person and how our brain reacts to it opposed to how our brain reacts to wanting something flashy and different. Yeah, so, well, having experience in marketing, it's very true that you're you're selling the experience and not the product right. in, in most cases because um, nobody cares what the specs on a product are. They right. care how it feels. Well, I was saying, like, with my little business, like, my soaps are going to be the same in any kind of packaging, but having, like, that specific packaging is going to draw people into buying it way more than my actual product is. Like, they're not buying it because of the product. Like, you could put the same product in anything, and the packaging makes all of the difference. Yeah, well, just look at any sort of designer clothing. And right. another factor uh, that plays in there, too, is, uh, you know, prestige pricing. Right. Where you don't even have to change anything about the appearance, the performance, anything about the product itself. You just put a much higher price on it, mm-hmm. and people go, okay, well... This no, is the, this is expensive. It must have some sort of value. I want this one. <laughs> right. So yeah. 
And that was those three sections. So 